in. Now, I might, I might sound like a wimp, but goodbyes have always been very hard for me. I don't know how many of you, do, do you, any of you here struggle with saying goodbye like I do? Not too many, I guess. You guys are all tough. I'm a wimp. Um, but as you know, a few weeks ago, took our oldest son to California, drove out there with him. And, and I know for a lot of you, you've done this already multiple times. Um, but for those of us who do it for the first time, it's, it's a strange new experience. But I remember all the way out as we drove to California, I wondered to myself, what am I going to say to him when I finally say goodbye? What am I going to tell him? What are gonna, I mean, not to sound overly morbid or anything like that. It's not goodbye forever, but, but what are my last words going to be to him before I leave him there? question is, why is it so difficult sometimes to say goodbye? And as I've, as I've thought about it, what's dawned on me is that the more we've cultivated a relationship with another person, the more that person becomes part of who we are. And Paul writes these last words to the Thessalonian believers because because there are certain things that he desperately wants for them. He desperately wants for them to experience a life of intimacy, the kind of life of intimacy that God designed for them from the beginning. And so, so with, this, with this in mind, it's important that we say that the mark of a spirit-filled life is a life of deep intimacy with God. And we're given some basic principles to help us, that we should keep in mind, I should say, if we want to cultivate this kind of relationship with God, this kind of relationship with God that is deeply intimate. Number one, number one, it takes work. It takes work to cultivate that kind of relationship. Now, it's important that, that I, I'm, that what, what I'm not saying, that it takes work. It's really important because we live in a culture where a lot of people think that we can actually earn our way to salvation, that we can work our way to a relationship with God. But with a relationship with God, that's not how it happens. In fact, the truth of the matter is, is that God made us for relationship with himself. But we turned our back on the Lord. That, that turning began in the garden. Adam and Eve turned their back on God. We inherited their nature. We inherited their fallen nature. We turn our back on God. And as a result of, of our sin, we have been separated from God as a, as a result of, of the choices that we have made. But God, in his infinite mercy and love, he decided to bridge that gap. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay back this debt that we owe that we cannot repay. And so that's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It was to save us from our sin, save us from something that we could not save ourselves from. And so the, the first principle of the Christian life is that, that um, works, our good works don't produce salvation. Only the work of Christ can save us. Only the work of Christ produces salvation. But there's another principle in the Christian life. Once we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith, 
That salvation that we receive produces good works. So we should not be surprised when we hear that it takes effort to live the Christian life. And Paul is very clear about this in, in, in these verses. In fact, um, as we begin in verses 19 through 22, we understand that, that a healthy relationship with Christ takes work just as a healthy relationship with, with, with anyone that you love, anyone that you know requires work. It requires effort. And so um, one, of the, one of the amazing things that happens to us when we enter into a personal relationship with Christ is that the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life. We notice in Ephesians 1.13, for example, it says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now this is an important concept that we understand if we're going to understand everything else that he has to say from now on. Because in verse 20, he sets up something that helps us to understand the nature of the Christian life, that helps us understand how to cultivate an intimate relationship with God. And it's this first command where he says in verse 20, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Now what does he mean by that? Well, the word quench is a word that's used for putting out a fire. And when we understand what it means to live in relationship with God, knowing that he places his Holy Spirit in us, we understand that the Holy Spirit is like a fire. The Holy Spirit is like a fire. And throughout Scripture, uh, we learn that God is like a fire. Now, now there, there are no human words that can, can perfectly describe who God is. And so God tells us many attributes about himself, but the, in the Bible, God also tells us what he is like. And one of those things that he is like is like a consuming fire. God is like a consuming fire. Have you ever heard somebody who was fired up? Well, I, I just used it that way, but you ever hear about somebody who, who, who was excited about the relationship that they had with Christ, and they, would, they say something like, I'm on fire for Christ. I feel fire within me. Well, that's, that's exactly what he's referring to. When the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us, the Holy Spirit is like a fire. And so the only description that we can give for this passion that burns inside of us is, is a fire. And so Paul begins this section by saying, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. And so it's important that if we're going to cultivate a relationship with God, if we're going to cultivate intimacy in our relationship with God, we need to be careful not to quench the Spirit. We, we need to be careful about not dumping water on the Spirit's work in our life. Now, there's nothing we can do to have the, the, have the Holy Spirit, if we are a genuine Christian, to, to, to leave or, 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 or uh, no longer take up residence within us. But there is, in some sense, uh, a manner in which our way of life can quench the, the Spirit's fire within us. And so he gives us certain things that, that we need to keep in mind if, if we desire to, to fan the flame that God has put in us, the, the passion that God has put in us for himself through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. First of all, we need to be committed to what he is committed to. We need to be committed to what God is committed to. Notice in verse 20, he says, do not despise 
prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. We're going to find out in a minute that the Thessalonian believers were not quick to accept the messages that they were getting from prophets. Now, we have to remember when this was written. When Paul wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians, obviously it's part of the New Testament, the New Testament wasn't yet completed. So what did people have? What did the people have that they could, that they could appeal to that would be revelation from God? Well, number one, they could appeal to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was completed. They would read the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament. But then on the other hand, since the New Testament wasn't yet completed, God sent the church prophets. And the prophets would actually speak God's revelation to believers. And he would give them specific instructions about the way that they should live. And God also gave apostles like Paul who gave revelation from God, specific ways in which they should live. And so what he's essentially saying is, is do not despise God's word. Do not despise God's word. We need to, we need to, we need to um, be committed to those things that God is committed to. We can't be reluctant to listen to God's word. We can't be reluctant to apply God's word. As soon as we do that, it's like pouring water on a, on a fire. He also says that we need to test what he tests. Verse 21, he says, but test everything. John Stott, who is a pastor and theologian, he gives us some tests that we can use to ensure that when we hear a message from Scripture, uh, that, that it's a faithful message. It's a faithful message. And I just want to share some of those with you this morning. And number one, when you hear, when you hear someone uh, speak on God's word, there's certain questions that we need to ask ourselves. First of all, does it align with Scripture? Is what I'm hearing align with Scripture, with the rest of the Bible? Here's an example of Acts 17.11, and this is where I say that the Thessalonian believers were reluctant to believe the, maybe many of the prophets that had come among them. It says, now these Jews, this is in a, in a city called Berea that Paul went to after Thessalonica, it says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul went to this city, and when he would preach, they had their, their Bibles in hand, they had their Old Testaments in hand, and they were making sure that everything that Paul was saying was true and was consistent with the Word of God. That is, that is what we are called to do. That's the first test, is, is what the teacher is saying, does it align with Scripture? Number two, does it tell the truth about Jesus? Does it tell the truth about Jesus? In 1 John 4, 2 and 3, usually when people are teaching false doctrine, they usually stumble on Jesus. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. I want to show you an example of something. How many of you have ever heard of the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed is the oldest creed of the church. There are a number of early creeds, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. And um, it, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing just to look at it from the angle of this test about Jesus. 
The Apostles' Creed, uh, at the beginning, we have a statement about God the Father. I believe, in, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Two lines, right? And then it goes on about Jesus. Look, look at how long this section is on Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is the section about Jesus. What do you notice about the section about Jesus in relation to the section on the Father? It's much longer, right? Now let's look at what it says about the Holy Spirit. It's only one line about the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. That means the universal church. That means Christians everywhere. It's not the Roman Catholic Church. It's the Catholic Church, the universal church. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Why, why do you think that it has two lines that we noticed on the Father? Uh, a giant section on Jesus and only one statement about the Holy Spirit. It's because the, the great controversies that usually enter into the church, the great heresies that usually come into the church, usually surround the person of Christ. And so when we hear someone speaking about the scriptures, we need to listen carefully to what they say about Jesus because that's usually where people are led astray. Second test. We notice here. And does it tell the truth about Jesus? Also, does it proclaim the gospel of God's free and saving grace found only in Christ? Is the message that we're hearing one in which, which uh, our only hope is found in the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross for us? Or is it uh, something that, uh, that, that maybe someone is saying that there are many roads to heaven There are all kinds of false teachings, false gospels that are out there today. But is it a gospel that proclaims God's free and saving grace found only in Christ? Paul says this about the gospel in Galatians 1, 7 and 8. He says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, Let him be accursed. Another element that we look at in whether or not the teaching that we are hearing is faithful is is what is the known character of the teacher? What is the known character of the teacher? Do you know that some people who are false teachers who may not know the Lord can teach doctrine that is perfectly orthodox? You hear what that person is saying and you, 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 you will find it impeccable. But what gives them away is not necessarily the things they say, but the life that they live. In fact, Jesus warns us about this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. If all else fails, one of the ways that we can recognize 
Whether we are under the teaching of someone who's faithful is the fruit of their life. And then finally, the last thing is, is does the teaching build up? Does the teaching build up and benefit God's people? Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 13, it says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These are the, these are the criteria. He calls, us to, he calls us to test everything that we hear. This last one about building up and benefiting God's people reminds me of, of once I, I heard an old tape of A.W. Tozer, and he was describing how he, how he approaches the development of his sermons. He says that when I develop a sermon, what I want to do is I want to serve to people a good meal. I want them to, to, to come out of a time of worship where they feel like they've been well-fed. And that's, and that's really the goal. That's really the goal of the, of the godly teacher is to, is to make sure that those that God has entrusted under their care will, will walk away from that time of, of study, of growth, where they feel as if they've been, they've been enriched in their life, in their heart. They've experienced a, 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 an interaction with God and his word that, that, that fills them with a, with a new sense of, of who they are in Christ, where they, where they grow and they're strengthened in their faith and they're nurtured in what they believe. And so we notice here that he tells us that we are to be committed to what he is committed to. Do not despise prophecies. We are to test what he tests. He says, but test everything. We need to value what he values. We need to value what he values. He says, since we know the truth, we must hold fast to what is good. We must Hold fast to what is good in verse 21. To hold fast to something means to retain what we have learned. And here for the apostle, what's, what's extremely important is that we make a connection between what we believe, what we know, and the way that we live. We need to hold fast to what we, what we believe and so that we, we live it. And we need to reject what he rejects. He says, abstain in verse 22 from every form of evil. I find it's interesting as we look at this that, that he says that we are to hold fast to what is good. There is one good, and that one good is found in relationship to Christ. But then he says we are to abstain from many forms of evil. There are many forms of evil, but there is one good. You see, obedience, our obedience to Christ proves our relationship with him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How does this happen? How does God do this in our life? This, this, this life in which we, we cultivate a relationship with him, especially when we struggle with sin in our life. And the best way that I can explain it is, is that the longer you walk with Christ, the more he works in your life, the more he transforms our lives, the more we begin to lose our taste for sin. All of us have struggled to one degree or another with, with besetting sins. And for some of us, we might find ourselves in the midst of those struggles right now. Maybe you're dealing with uh, maybe some kind of sin in your life that feels overwhelming and you feel like you're never going to get free from it. But the beauty of a relationship with Christ, the longer we walk with him, 
The more he begins to change our desires, the more he uses our circumstances to conform who we are to that of Christ so that, so that more and more we will desire less and less to live in sin. More and more we will desire a life of holiness. More and more we will desire to live a life that pleases, to, pleases him. And this begins as we, as we fan the flame of the Holy Spirit that is, that is burning within us, that we're careful not to quench the fire of his spirit. And the, and the more we've experienced delight in him, the less we will turn to the delights of this world. Second thing we notice here is uh, the first thing was it takes effort. But the second thing, cultivating a life of intimacy, God promises to do all the heavy lifting. God promises to do all the heavy lifting. We notice in verses 23 and 24 it says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The truth of the matter is, is that it is impossible for us to live the Christian life in our own strength. It's sort of like a, a small child. I don't know how many of you have ever played wiffle ball with a small child. Anybody know what, everybody know what wiffle ball is? Wiffle ball is a game where you use a plastic ball, plastic bat, everything's light. And, um, and you might get a small child there and she might be holding the bat and you, you take the ball and you throw it to her and the ball goes right by her. And then she'll swing about three seconds later. And no matter how many times you try, you just can't get the two to connect. So what do you do? You, um, you, you hand someone else the ball, and then you grab hold of the bat with her. And then when that person throws the ball, you grab the bat as she's swinging, and you swing together, and you hit the ball. That's how it is in a relationship with Christ. It is impossible for us to cultivate a life of intimacy with God by ourselves. And because of that, God is the one who does all of the heavy lifting in our relationship with him. And we see this illustrated beautifully in these verses. He tells us something about God. He appeals to the attributes of God. He calls God the God of peace in verse 23. Paul wants us to understand that the reason why Jesus came was so that we could experience real peace in our life. Because of Jesus' work on our behalf, because Jesus died on the cross for our sin, because Jesus was our substitute, because Jesus paid a debt for our sin that we could not pay, Jesus made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. In our own strength, we could never do it as we've discussed already. Jesus did this. But not only did Jesus make it possible for us to live at peace with God, he also made it possible for us to live at peace with one another. You see, once we come to the point where we realize what God has forgiven us from and saved us from, it is hard for us to hold grudges against other people for the things that they have done to us. In fact, it makes us people who are quick to forgive and quick to confess and that's really how we live in right relationship with each other. And only God empowers us supernaturally to do that. You see, you see, God makes it possible to live at peace with him. He also makes it possible to live at peace with one another. And, he, and, and, and uh, finally, he makes it possible to, for us to live at peace with ourselves. 
There are a lot of us here, and probably none of us really want to admit it, but I I would imagine that there are a lot of us here who struggle with self-loathing. Self-loathing. When you think about your life, maybe think about things that, that you did in the past, Maybe things, maybe, maybe um, certain goals that you, never, that you never achieved that you always had for your own life. Maybe you, think about, um, maybe you think about certain decisions that you made in your life. Maybe, maybe in your interactions with other people, maybe oftentimes when you, you've had a conversation with, one, with, with another person, you'll walk away and you'll just be so angry with yourself. I wish I would have said that, this. I wish I would have done that. Oh, that person is going to think I'm a, I'm a fool after that conversation. And we go through our life and we, 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 we speak of ourselves in this way. And, and it's self-talk that goes on in, in our mind and our thinking all the time. We know, that, we know the truth that we shouldn't speak certain ways about other people, right, as Christians? Well, if that's true, if, if there's certain ways that, that we shouldn't speak about other people, and we, we know that, and we would never do that, some people speak ways about themselves, or, some people say things about themselves that they would never say about another person. Do you know that? But do you know that when God redeemed you, he redeemed you completely? Some of you struggle with this. Sometimes it eats you to pieces. It, it, it rips you apart, these things. But do you know that Christ not only gives you the ability to have peace with God and have peace with others, but even have peace in your own life. God accepts us just as we are. We are, we are frail creatures and we are, by nature, sinful. We disappoint ourselves. We disappoint others. Yet God accepts us the way that we are and God has a plan to transform us and to and to do extraordinary things in our lives as a result of the relationship that we have with him. In fact, we get a picture of his love for us in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It says this, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And do you know that when you have a relationship with Christ, when you have been washed in the blood of Christ, when he looks at you, he looks at you in the righteousness of his son. And so we read these words in verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us that it's God's plan to sanctify us completely and there are three elements of sanctification. So um, sanctification is simply this idea of God making us holy. To be sanctified means to be holy. To be sanctified means that we are a saint. And so there, there are three elements of this sanctification. The first element of sanctification is, is positional sanctification. The moment that you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, at that moment, he makes you holy. Holy in his sight, you are dressed in the righteousness of, of Christ. When he looks at you, he looks at you as one who is holy. Martin Luther uh, put it this way. When we are in Christ, we are simultaneously saint and sinner. 
Many of us very often, we can, we, we're well aware of the sinner part. But before God, we are also saint. We are also holy. That happens the moment we come to him. Not only is there this positional sanctification, but there's something called progressive sanctification. As we go through the course of our life, what God does is he conforms our way of life to that of Christ. So that we, so that we reflect him more and more as we go through our days, as we go through our life. And progressively, we grow in Christ and progressively we become more like him. And as we become more like Jesus over the course of our life, we are going through this process of sanctification. That's progressive sanctification. But then there is a final aspect of, of sanctification, which is a, 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 a perfective kind of sanctification. That once we close our eyes in this life and we open our eyes in the life to come, we will have our status, our position as being holy, and we will have our way of life these two will be perfectly matched so that the way that we live and our status in Christ will be holy. God is going to perfect that sanctification within us. This is God's plan for us, that our way of life and our status in Christ will match, that we will be holy. This is what he promises to do. It is a complete transformation of our whole life. And so he says in verse 23 and May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. One day we are going to stand in Christ's presence. One day we are going to give an account of our life and we ask the question, how will we stand on that day? Well, the word here for kept is a military word and it's very important. It says that, he says that we will be kept blameless. This, this term means to guard something. What it means is that God himself will guard our salvation and he will keep us blameless. The word there, blameless, is a reference to, to uh, unblemished sacrifices. It would have been used for, for those sacrifices that would have been brought in the Old Testament. One day we will stand before Christ and because of Christ he will keep us blameless so that on the day that we will see him, we will stand before him as those who have been forgiven. I love the song Third Day has. It's called Trust in Jesus. And uh, the song goes like this. One of these days, we will all stand in judgment for every single word that we have spoken. One of these days, we will all stand before the Lord, give a reason for everything we've done. What are you going to do when the time has come and your life is done? And there's nothing you can stand on. What will you have to say at the judgment throne? I already know. The only thing that I can say is I trust in Jesus. My great deliverer, my strong defender, the son of God. I trust in Jesus. Blessed redeemer, my Lord forever, the holy one, the holy one. You see, we will have nothing to say of our own account, but we have a Savior who has gone before us to rescue us. And through him, we experience new life. It's through him that we experience the, 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 the purity that we all long for. Well, just want to make a few applications from this. Number one, 
Well, we will experience intimacy God, with God when we come to a point that there are not enough hours in a day to spend with him. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your own life, where the more and more you cultivate a relationship with him, you see him in everything. You have a conversation with someone, and as you're having that conversation with them, with that person, your mind is, is going back and forth between, between that person and the Lord, and you're asking God to, to intervene and work in that situation. The more you grow in your relationship with Christ, the more intimate you become in your relationship with Christ, the more uh, you, will, you will begin to feel that there are not enough hours in a day that you could spend with him. Number two, when our purpose for our life aligns with his purpose for our life, we will see that we're growing in, our, in intimacy, in relationship with God, that we will see that the, that the reason why God made us was so that we could commune with him, and it's in that relationship with him that we find our our, our our deepest satisfaction and our greatest joy. You see, as we grow in that, we'll grow in our intimacy with God. Third one, when we'd rather have him than any earthly thing. I'm telling you, the more that you grow in Christ, the more you will see this, the more you will experience this in life, you will see that there's nothing in this world that is a, is a good substitute for a relationship with him. We have all of these things that we chased after. Maybe it's a maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a it's a new gadget, maybe it's a maybe it's a new home, maybe it's a new job, whatever it is, and we chase after these things and we hope that once we get it, we think that we're going to find true and lasting meaning and happiness. And then when we finally get a hold of it, whatever this thing is, we realize that it blows up in our face. But the deeper we grow in our relationship with Christ, the more we find satisfaction in that relationship with Christ. And the more we begin to realize that we'd rather have him than any earthly thing. And then the fourth one is this. We will experience intimacy with God when we prefer to die for him rather than to live for ourselves. When we prefer to die for him rather than to live for ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 16 these words, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Have you experienced that intimacy with Christ? Have you experienced that relationship which you were made for? It's found in him. And when Paul was writing these last words, when he was saying his last words in this letter, he writes another letter, but when he's saying his last words to them in this letter, this is what he wanted for them more than anything else. And that was for them to walk with Christ, to experience true intimacy, a fellowship with him, so that he becomes our all-consuming passion and desire, that our hearts would burn for him, that he'd be glorified in our life. Have you experienced that? That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus went to a cross, so that anyone who places their faith and trust in him can experience the life that only he offers, the kind of life that only he can give. If you don't know him, I hope that this day might be a day where you would come to 
trust him as your Lord and Savior. If you're a Christian who may, may have been dumping cold water on the Holy Spirit's work in your life, this is a day where that, that passion for him can be renewed. But it begins with that commitment to the relationship that he holds out to us, that we trust him for. And in that relationship, we find all that we were made to experience. Let's pray. Father.